So I was in the mountains this week uh, doing a little work on, on a little cabin that Corinne and I have. This is like 16 by 20. Um, but it's got 10 feet wall, 10 foot walls, and so we're putting this loft in so, so we can sleep up top and then have the cabin space below. And one of the cool things is uh, we, we years ago cut down trees and, and had them milled into boards, and so we've got this rough cut lumber, and uh, I'm building the loft out of this rough cut lumber. And so instead of doing like, you know, plywood and then floorboards on it, I'm just doing the floorboards out of the, the rough cut two by fours and two by sixes and uh, two by eights, and, and so I thought, you know, th- this will be pretty easy. You just put a board down on top of the joist, and you screw it in, and, and man, it'll take like four hours, and, and I thought that's how it would go until I started to work with the rough cut lumber, which um, I- even though we dried it a couple of years, still kind of bowed and twisted and, and warped, and so you, you lay it down, and you're like, hey, this board's not straight. In fact, this board starts here, and it ends up four inches over here by the time I'm done. And so what was going to take three, four hours ended up taking about 25, 30 hours to get everything the way that it is. And I'm like clamping boards down and, and, and having one guy push while I screw down. And, and just uh, nothing's really working the way that we want it to. Um, and everything's just taking a little bit more effort than what it should take and, and, and just like finally get done but I'm like wow this was this was hard you know I, I could have just went to to Lowe's and everything would have been just straight and I mean it should be anyway uh straight and 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 that would make it so much easier but I thought you know what? that's so much like life all, all the time it's like just anything that you're planning anything that you're planning you always plan it in life as if you're going to get straight lumber to work with but what you get is never quite that. And, and so then reality comes and, and relationships happen and, and it's not really what you thought it would be. Or you, you interact with somebody and it's not really as you anticipated. And, and so it's almost like life itself is filled with this, this lumber that is all warped and bowed and twisted and, and checked and it's, it's, it's not how it should be. Well, the scripture talks about this and it talks about this kind of warped existence, how it's kind of skewed from always what we want it to be, and it's because of this problem called sin. And sin in the Bible, this idea has been kind of like misused and misunderstood for so long, so I want us to really understand what sin is and, and how it works. We're all born in this world with sin, and we've got hearts that are kind of skewed towards selfishness, and, and so we'll warp things to get them to be our way, even if it's kind of manipulative towards somebody else. And this is a problem called sin. And so this series for the next three weeks is, is called Go and Leave, because the Christian message, the message from Jesus to his followers, is to leave a life of warped morality to leave a life that, that is bent towards evil and to walk towards good. So I, I want us to read a couple of scriptures to kind of give sort of this overview of why Jesus was here and what he was trying to do. And, and I, think it, I think it'll make sense for where we're going in this series. So um, One of the scriptures we're going to read is a prophecy of his birth, why he's being born. The other is going to be sort of this forerunner guy who went before Jesus to to attract people and draw people to him. And this is, this is like the first time where he's revealing who Jesus is. And then we're going to read a scenario where a woman has been caught in, in sinful behavior um, in sexual sin, and, and she's about to be judged, and, and Jesus is going to speak on her behalf. And, and so just follow along with me. Matthew 
uh, 1 says, But after uh, he had considered this, after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you were to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And John 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus and it says the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in John 8, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and at this, those who, had, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with a woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this text, we, we can look in this world and see that nothing is really quite as it should be. And even, even these moments where we feel like, oh, this is, this is right, this is good, it really doesn't last long. And, and then we're back into this, this world where it's not what it's supposed to be. And, and so then we look to the Scriptures and we see, Lord, that your Son came to, to save us from our sins, to take away our sins. And his message to a, a woman who's condemned in sin is, is a message of love, but also a message of direction. That for her, life would be found not in the lifestyle she had chosen, but by leaving it and following after you. Lord, I pray today that as, as we each have our own sin that we kind of hang on to and, and we keep near to us and we stay in, that we would see this from your perspective and we'd follow your advice to go now and leave our life of sin. We ask this in your son's name, amen. So we have this three-part series of go and leave and, and really j- just gonna give it to you right up front. This is, this is what sin is. We're gonna talk about what sin is this week. We're gonna talk about how you can leave next week, why, why you would wanna leave, how you can leave next week and, and then where do you, where do you go? So, so what do you do? And, and so we're going to talk about those three things um, in, in the coming weeks. And um, so today is sort of the, the, the what is sin, and, and we'll drift into a little bit of why, why Jesus would say go and, and leave it. Um, and so uh, to do that, we're, gonna, we're just going to kind of help you visualize what sin is, and then, then we're going to talk about one thing that sin, sin never is. So what sin is and one thing sin never is. Um, because I want, you to, I want you to understand this. I want us to kind of be on the same page about this. Uh, I think it's incredibly important for us as a church that exists in a culture that, that has kind of dismantled the idea of sin and, and to try to cope with some of the guilt and shame that they feel. They've just kind of redefined morality. And so I think it's extremely important for us to say, okay, well, how do we understand this? And how can we be on the same page? So, so let's talk about what sin is and from some sort of this uh, 
this perspective of, of trying to help visualize it. So a couple of things that, that the scriptures teach us about sin. And um, if you want to know where any of these are in particular, I'd be happy to show them to you. But just for the sake of time, we're going to kind of move a little bit quickly through this section. section um, that sin is, sin is like treated as something that's toxic compared to something that's organic. Like sin is, it's toxic. Your body's not really meant for it. If, if you were to eat this, it would be, it would be like eating like food poisoning. It'd just be, it's not what your body is meant for. It's not what you're meant for. It's not what this world is meant for. So if you bring sin into this world, then, then that's, that's bringing toxic into something that is opposed to, in other words, is organic. Something that's corrosive as opposed to something that's healthy and good. Sin is polarizing Compared to, to follow after God, it's kinda, it kind of draws. And so, so I think of it like this. Like if you had a magnet, you ever play with magnets? When we were kids, we used to play with magnets all the time. Um, and if you take a magnet and you flip it the wrong way, and you try to push them together, you ever try to do that? And you try to just push them together, it won't work because they're polarizing and it's repelling against it. And what the scriptures teach is that, that sin sort of is polarizing to to a relationship with God and to anything that, that God says is good and would be, would be a blessing for you in life. Sin just kind of naturally pushes away no matter how hard we try to make it, make it work. Sin is draining compared to filling. Draining compared to, to, to filling. Um, especially sexual sin. This, like, this would be a, a big one for this one. Um, I had a friend that worked at Jiffy Lube for like two days. And he worked at Jiffy Lube for two days because... He forgot to put the oil drain plug back in a car on the second day. You can imagine that was a pretty expensive bill for the owner and for the Jiffy Lube shop um, after a couple of days because you kind of have to have that in there. Sin is just kind of like just like just just loosening that bolt just a little bit and it's it's draining. And so if you ever wonder why life just kind of feels drained, then stop and look at it from a moral perspective. Because what Scripture is teaching is this kind of just kind of life pouring out, life itself draining from you, and so then also sin is enslaving versus that which is free. And so the person who lusts doesn't just kind of lust casually; they feel compelled to. Like if there's an opportunity for lust, they, they feel like they have to to look. If the person is greedy, they, they just feel this inward compulsion, like they need to. Need to have it, need to get it. So, so sin is, has this enslaving, um, whereas Jesus is, is going to teach again and again about finding freedom in following after him. Sin is deceiving versus unveiling. My wife all the time will make fun of me for my glasses being too dirty. I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, my glasses aren't dirty. Everything's just hazy today. My glasses aren't dirty. The windshield's just dirty. No, my gla- and then I look and I'm like, and actually right now, my glasses, no lie, are definitely dirty. Um, and, and so it just happens kind of gradually and I don't see things. I don't see the little specks of dirt or the little kid sneezes or, or whatever gross ends up on my glasses. just kind of naturally, it just kind of clouds. And, and so sin has this, this sort of clouding effect on our vision, on our life, where we don't see things as they're meant to be. Um, and so think about it like this. All of us, myself included, are way more sinful than we realize. Way more sinful than we realize. Like So, so um, if I were to ask you right now, like, how sinful of a person are you? You might be like, maybe. But then if you think, like, well, how many times have you manipulated? 
How many times have you been selfish and you, you maybe misspoke or gossiped about somebody? How many times have you lied? And you, you start to see with clarity of, wow, like may, maybe I'm more sinful than I realize. And maybe, maybe it's not just that the world is evil, but there's evil within my own heart. And so it's, it's deceiving compared to something that's unveiling or, or revealing. Um, and then so like kind of the overarching thing is that's because sin is death compared to life. That sin is at best just a little experience of death and life. In fact, Solomon, um, w- wisest man to have ever lived, he has this moment where he's instructing his sons uh, about life. And, and so he, he says, boys, watch this. This man's going to walk down the street past this, this um, woman's house, and, and she's a prostitute. And she's going to watch. She's going to lure them in. And, and, and I want you to know that when she's lured, and this is Proverbs chapter 5, when she lures them in, the, the phrase at the end, which is so incredibly vivid, it says that they're enjoying a banquet in the grave. It's, it's a dinner party with, with death. And so, so then when you look at all of that, when Jesus meets a woman who's being condemned by, by everybody else around her, he, in one sense, says, I'm not going to condemn you for this out of his love, out of his just incredible mercy and grace. But then in the same sentence, he says, go now and leave your life of sin. Because why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he, in his perfect understanding of humanity and how it's become bowed and warped, why wouldn't he say to the woman in a toxic polarizing, draining, enslaving, deceitful dance with death. Why wouldn't he say, find another partner? Why wouldn't he say, leave? And so I think there's become this sort of mentality where, where we, we tell people that they should leave sin because, because of maybe how they're categorized. But Jesus seems to tell somebody to leave a life of sin because of what they're experiencing. There's just sort of this darkness and, and death that's part of your life, and that's not how you're created. And, and so go now and leave your life of sin. This would be like, like one time I went to this restaurant, and I'm not going to tell you the name of the restaurant. It's not close enough here to tell you, so you have to worry about avoiding it. Um, but I, I was, uh, I, we had like ordered pizza or something for the kids, and I looked in the back, and the, and the lady making food was making some, some chicken wings, and she threw some chicken wings in the, the, like the sauce bowl, and she's like tossing around, and she like dips, dips, her, uh, dips her finger in there and takes a big old taste of it and then just like keeps going. I'm like, ah, oh, that's gross. I'm glad I didn't order chicken wings today. Like I don't, I don't want her hand like touching my food and tasting my food, and and then I got to wonder, like, what else is like, what else is going on in the kitchen, right? And these are the times when you're not surprised when the health food violations start to come in, and the, and the place gets shut down. And I've got a buddy who delivers like, you know, uh, soft drinks to the, the, these places, and he's like, "Yeah, I would not order food from there," because you, you just feel like eventually you're going to get food poisoning because it's it's not how you should handle food. But Jesus is speaking as if we're ingesting something that is not meant for our bodies. It's not meant for how we're supposed to live. In fact, in Romans 6, Paul is talking about this, and, and, and he says, for the wages of sin is death. Like if sin is your boss, your paycheck would be death. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, so Jesus meets this woman caught in adultery and, and says, look, you've been paid death. Go leave it and let me offer you life. And so as we, we begin this series, I, I need you to understand the toxicity and the drain and the enslavement of sin is what Jesus is freeing you from. That God's version of human flourishing is for you to live a, a life that excludes sin. And I know, I know, we're not going to be perfect. I know we're going to be drawn back into it. But I just need you to see it. I need you to see that God's vision of human flourishing excludes sin. So that's, that's what sin is, but I needed to tell need to tell you then the one thing that sin never is, not once. Never in the scripture is the issue of sin an opportunity for us to reach this sort of moral high ground from where we look down at others who don't or do sin. Like sin is never this opportunity where we leave a life of sin, where we then get over here and we're like, I'm not like you. That's never, that's never, the sin is never like in the category of better or less than as if I'm better than somebody else or somebody else is less than me because of their behavior. So go now and leave it. But when you leave it, it's never like, ha, I'm better than you. This is incredibly, incredibly important to Jesus who, who, who says, which one of you gets to throw the stone? Like, who's going who, who's to throw the stone? Yeah, she, she has sinned. She has. None of you get to throw that stone. And so there's never this sort of opportunity where I've left sin and therefore then I get to look down on others who sin because the very nature of that would be pride, which is sin. So if you did that, I just want you to know you'd step up to a moral high ground and look down and the very nature would knock you off the moral high ground because it's pride. Jesus explains it this way in Luke chapter 9 and verse, uh, or Luke chapter 18. He says, to some who were confident in their own righteousness... And look down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. We have a whole series on parables coming up in May. I can't wait. Um, he said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, this, this religious guy who, who was on this moral high ground, who left most of the, the, the known sins, who left most of the public sins, who left most of the sins that you could diagnose simply by looking at somebody. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who will exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's not moral high ground. It's not look at me. It's not God, thank you, that I'm not like the person who struggles with this. God, I'm just so incredibly thankful that I'm not like this person who's an addict. 
God, I'm so incredibly thankful that I'm not like this person in, in, in same-sex behaviors. God, I'm so incredibly thankful that I'm not like this person who, who just got caught. This is, not, this is not what Jesus is teaching. What Jesus is teaching should offer us a sympathy towards everybody else who's in the same situation as us in a different way. Sin in the Scriptures is, is, is a shared... I'm going to read this. It's, sin is a collective problem. We all have it, and it's a shared condition. It's a collective problem. It's a shared condition. And so there should be this sympathy that originates from the idea that all of us struggle. And whether my struggle is, is with lust, with sexual sin, with same-sex behavior, with alcoholism, with greed, with gluttony, we each have a struggle. And whatever my particular struggle is, is not a moral high ground to look down on somebody else. So, so let me be clear. Here's what we're not doing. We're not saying sin is okay. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. If, if you keep going to the doctor again and again because they can't figure out what's wrong, there might be a part of you that might, wants to say, uh, can we just call this the new healthy? And the doctor's going to say, well, no, no, because you're not healthy. You're not. You still need to be treated. There still needs to be a cure. We're not redefining what sin is, but we are, are wholeheartedly saying that there shouldn't be a moral high ground. So for me personally, I have zero inclination to lie. If I were to, to lie to somebody, I would just feel this like repulsiveness within myself. I couldn't live with myself. I would have to come and tell you. That's, this is just who I am. I, I just could not stand to lie. This is why, like, if I start down a trail and then, like, I, and I'm preaching and then I accidentally say, like, one other thing, I'm gonna, I, I feel like I need to clarify that because I don't want to be dishonest. But if you privately put a stack of money in front of me and said, Matt, that's yours, you can use that to, be, to, to get your, your next hunting weapon or your next hunting camouflage, or you can use that to be incredibly generous towards somebody in need. And you walked away, and you never knew what I did. I would be greedy. There's a part of me that would be incredibly drawn to wanting to say I could get another thing. Lying? Pfft, no. It's, I, I just can't, can't stand it. But greed? That's a struggle. I didn't pick that. Like I, I wasn't born to this world and think, I'm going to hate lying and I'm going to love greed. We all just sort of have this struggle. And Jesus' message to all of us, regardless of what it is, is to go and leave. But his message is also that as you begin to leave, don't think that you're better. Because this whole thing is built on the humility of the tax collector, not the pride of the Pharisee. Right? See, looking down on someone because of their sin is really one of the most unchristian things we can do. Because none of us earned any of this. If you've never heard a cancer patient, never, never heard a cancer survivor look down on somebody else because they got cancer. They, they, they wouldn't. They, they wouldn't say, I can't believe you. I can't believe you got that. No, they might say, hey, you, you should get treatment. Let me help you. Let me pray with you, maybe, maybe change your lifestyle. They might encourage healing, but they're not going to look down. And Jesus came to be a doctor to the sick, and all of us having been sick 
None of us have the right to say, I can't believe you're sick. This, this is how grace and mercy work. Right? So we receive grace, we receive mercy. None of us deserved it. And so none of us get to look down on somebody else because they don't deserve it. And, and I, I know I'm kind of being preachy right now, but that's my job. So, so here's the thing. Um, because we're supposed to, to leave, right? I, I need us to understand this then. Um, sin is our most serious problem, and Jesus is its lone solution. Sin is our most serious problem, and Jesus is its lone solution. At one point, Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders, and, and, and they're kind of talking about you know, whether or not he's the Messiah. And Jesus, Jesus and, and everybody's looking for this kind of political, um, the, this, this military strength leader, and that's not who Jesus is, because Jesus is here to primarily work with us in the problem of sin. So everybody's missing it because they're looking for one thing and Jesus is going, look, if I changed the world but you still had evil hearts, this wouldn't work. And so he says, he says, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. I'm, I'm not here for all this. You've got this disease within you. I'm here for that. I'm here for your soul. Because if you die in your sins, the, the Bible's teaching is that, that you, you're separated from God in hell. And, and hell is this existence without God, without anything good, without love, without anything hopeful or joyful, just, just the antithesis to what heaven is. It's horrible. And Jesus says, I'm afraid that if you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. And, and so we here we have the problem, but in the same breath, we have the solution. We have the disease, but we also have the cure. And Jesus is making the appeal, I am the cure. I'm the solution to your most serious problem. Sin demands justice, but Jesus is there to satisfy it. In the scriptures, they'll often use this sort of way to picture God's anger or God's wrath or God's judgment, and they'll talk about it as a cup, a cup of wrath being poured out. Job will talk about the cup of wrath of the Almighty. Ezekiel will talk about the cup of, of ruin and desolation, and so the night before Jesus is crucified, right? So Jesus is praying. And it's just this intensely agonizing prayer. He's sweating blood as he's anticipating not so much the physical death, but the relationship, the, the, the split between God the Father and God the Son through, through the suffering that he's about to endure. I mean, you, you think of like, you, you read Romeo and Juliet and, and, and the tragedy of their relationship you know, fading through death. This is, this is to the millionth degree of the love between the Father and the Son. Jesus is just in total agony, and he says, is there any other way? And another way shows up not long after because Peter shows up with his sword. And they try to arrest Peter, or they try to arrest Jesus, and Peter steps in with his sword and, and cuts one of the guards off, ears off. There's, there's a way, and Jesus says this in John chapter 18 and verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. 
Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? I mentioned we're going to take communion. I just want to talk about that for a little bit. Jesus' statement, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? What, what does that mean? What's he saying? What, what's the magnitude of this statement at this moment? Cut the ear off, and, and Jesus is going to heal the man. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus is saying this isn't to be avoided. This is more than you think it is, Peter. This is not about my rise to power. This is about my descent into the grave through the cross. This is not about political reign. This is about spiritual cure. So Jesus feels in one sense this, this deep desire to avoid what's going to happen between him and the Father. But in another sense, this incredible conviction out of love to say, I want to go through with this for the sake of everybody who's going to die in their sins. He, he goes through with it for Colossians 1.21 to happen. It says, once you were alienated from God, once your, your sin, all, all of that separated you from him, once you were alienated from God and, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now God the Father has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. He didn't want anything of the death, but at the same time, he wanted everything of offering us life. See, the cup that he speaks of is, is the cup of God's wrath. And what, what the scriptures are presenting us with is this, this reality that the cup that Jesus drank was not his cup, it was mine. It was not his cup, it was ours. And it was as if, uh, it was as, if uh, as the cup was theirs for ours to, to drink, Jesus reached out and took the cup from our hands and he drank it himself. And he took the punishment, he took the judgment, he took the wrath of God and he drank death so that I could drink life. So here's the thing, when we take communion, and we have this kind of little cup, and you can go ahead and start to open it up. It's sort of this remembrance of saying, Jesus took this cup for me. And when I drink of it, I, I'm sort of wedding myself to his judgment. That I no longer have a cup. Because Jesus took it. I'm forever married to his judgment in the same moment. I'm, ever, I'm forever married to his life. Rebecca McLaughlin says it this way. She says, the choice we have is this, to face hell by ourselves or to hide ourselves in Christ. There's no better or worse person. Better off? Sure. Yeah. Through faith in Christ, we're much better off. To leave a life of sin, of that which is enslaving, of that which is toxic, deceitful, which is an experience of death, yeah, I'm much better off. I'm not better then, because I didn't take this cup. 
and then take the cup of God's wrath Jesus Christ did. This cup is also an invitation. It's an invitation to find a solution for the issue of your own sin. That you would find forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. When the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this cup is my body. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then to represent the new covenant. A covenant where we don't face the cup of God's wrath, but instead we find his love. He said, this is to represent my blood which is poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. My Father God, I think of the incredible mercy with which you looked at that woman and said, neither do I condemn you. Father, through faith in your Son, we stand free of condemnation. But Lord, I pray we don't live in that which drags us back. I pray that we'd be free. In your Son's name we pray.